1: the coronavirus and COVID-19 have changed so much about what we do in waterfowl management this year, especially on the data collection front. We talked about the cancellation of the waterfowl breeding population and habitat survey, as well as a few other things that have been upended uh, as a result of, of COVID. One of the other data pieces of data that is often collected by our waterfowl research partners uh, that we, we often look forward to this time of year is information on productivity of ar- Arctic nesting geese. Listeners of the podcast will recall last year we had Dr. Ray Alisovkas and Dr. Rocky Rockwell join us and they described some of their work over the past 30 to 50 years at some of these Arctic nesting, uh, Arctic nesting goose breeding colonies. Uh, but people weren't able to get back up there to, to continue that research this year. So we've been, we're, we're lacking that traditional information, but nevertheless, we do have someone joining us today that's going to share what little information we do have. We might've been able to glean thus far, either from some, uh, some some viewing of weather reports, snow cover, things of that nature. Uh, and the other thing we're going to discuss is you know kind of how banding efforts have changed also uh, in Canada in response to the coronavirus. And so our guest today to help with these topics and, and a couple of others is Frank Baldwin, wildlife biologist with Environment and Climate Change Canada. Frank, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me, Mike.
1: Frank to get started let's give our listeners just a bit of background about where you are and what you do for uh, for the Canadian government
2: I'm uh, located in uh, Winnipeg Manitoba um, in the in the Prairie Poal region and uh, my work sort of focuses on um, a variety of, of long-term programs uh, in Prairie Canada and also in uh, Arctic Canada so um, myself and, and other individuals in our region uh, we work together with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and provincial agencies in coordination of, of several programs in Canada, including the uh, the Waterfowl Breeding Population and Habitat Survey, uh, the Woodcock Singing Ground Survey, um, and a variety of uh, banding programs, including duck banding, temperate nesting, Canada goose banding, and then uh, one of the, our large programs and, and one of my main responsibilities, which is our Arctic goose banding program, which occurs at a variety of locations uh, and none of it.
1: Frank, I'm glad you mentioned some of the state and provincial partners because you're you're involved in North American waterfowl management in a variety of ways. And you, you, this being a migratory resource, you of course have to interact with all other Agencies, and of course that includes the U.S. government as well as the state governments. And you're an active participant in the the, the administrative flyway system. I, I know you attend and participate regularly in the Mississippi Flyway Council uh, Game Bird Technical Section, I believe it's called. Do you also participate in the Central Flyway uh, Central Flyway Council? Their technical section, or is that another? One, is that one of your counterparts?
2: Yeah, that's one of my colleagues in uh, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Blake Bartson. Uh, he's the he's a representative of the CWS rep for the for the Central Flyway. And and so we have other individuals in Canada that attend, you know, the other the other flyway um, tech section meetings and and are sort of regularly engaged with all of our partners. Um, And that's actually probably one of the highlights of my job is that I get to work with all these great individuals from, from all over North America, both, you know, in the States and the federal agencies and, and the provinces and yeah, migratory bird management is definitely a collaborative uh, approach uh, amongst all those partners. And then, and then obviously, you know, hunters through the harvest survey programs and, and uh, reporting of bands. So yeah, just, uh, I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's, that's probably a, the best part of my job is interacting with all these different individuals, both uh, both in some of our programs and and in writing management plans and and some of you know the regular discussion that we have.
1: And it was actually through uh, a the recent virtual meeting of the Mississippi Flyway Council Game Bird Tech Section that I heard about some of what we're going to talk about here. And and I know you and I had talked about getting you on the podcast some months ago, but I'll be honest, I can't even remember at that time if it was pre-COVID or or after COVID had hit, and maybe at that time I was thinking we'd have a whole lot more data to talk about. But as it is, we don't have much, uh, but uh, but nevertheless, it's another opportunity to bring what little bits of information we can glean to our listeners, because we're all hungry for information about what may be coming down the flyway in terms of ducks and geese. And so, let's start out, Frank, just by recap, what happened with the banding programs? You mentioned your your participation and involvement in in that, uh, and I know that was that was influenced as well by COVID restrictions. So, how did that unfold this year? And how have the banding efforts? Uh, how have they gone
2: for for your agency this year? I think we started to get a sense just after the flyway meetings about you know how how the pandemic could shape up and influence some of our field programs and. I, I, yeah, I don't think any of us anticipated losing some of these long-term monitoring programs uh, you know decades long with without any interruption but uh, uh, this was this was the year it happened so we um, we we do begin our planning for our Arctic goosespanning program very very far in advance of our field work so about this time of year we're starting to put together um, some of the logistics for, um, putting crews in the Arctic and in, in extremely remote places to to round up and and brand, uh, band uh, uh, flightless uh, geese and and their young, and um, so so that work is really starting now. That planning and in terms of contracts and um, figuring out uh, helicopters and uh, accommodation and crews and fuel positioning and all of the, all of the things that go into running that program. That um, I, I think that a lot of people. Maybe don't don't understand that haven't worked in the Arctic is that it's a it's a very remote um, challenging place to operate a lot of weather challenges a lot of uncertainty with logistics and so that work begins so early um, but came to a really abrupt halt uh, when when all Arctic uh, operations were were canceled so all of the all of the um, aircraft that are um, that are contracted through the uh, uh, polar continental shelf. Program it's called um, were were cancelled uh, in in May and really that that meant that none of the the, the banning could occur this year. So um, we think about how to get how we get into some of the locations. We use in some places we use twin otter aircraft to position our crews and to position fuel, and then we have helicopters that meet them to to carry out the banning from their their accommodation sites um, without any ability for. For aircraft to position, there's no way that the, the field work can be done, and um, I think there was a combination of things that led to the cancellation. Uh, one, one of the main things being the vulnerability of of communities in Nunavut um, to risk of uh, introduction of of uh, uh, coronavirus, and um, and the reality that you can't physically distance very well in in a helicopter or in remote field camps or or other aircraft and. And so um, there was a combination of things that led to the cancellation, and so that meant we, we had we didn't have any um, geese banded in the entire Arctic this year. Uh, we had a handful of birds banded in the subarctic and northern Manitoba, which was carried out by staff from the province of Manitoba because they were able to to band subarctic uh, subarctic nesting Canada geese and also some uh, mid-continent snow geese at, at La Perouse Bay because the crew was from Manitoba. They were remaining in Manitoba and they had the ability to contract their own helicopters. So we're grateful for that effort, but that really represents the only um, geese banded in, uh, in, the, in the Canadian North this year. And so that means that uh, uh, we have a gap in um, – and that banning data, and we also have a gap in in understanding what productivity was like this year, and that's a really common inquiry that we get from the public and from hunters, um, because hunters know that um, in years where there's a, a large numbers of juveniles, that translates into good hunting success. And so this year, um, we were trying to make some approximations about what uh, conditions were like, or what productivity might be like, based on on what the spring conditions were.
1: Frank, I wanna explore a, a bit more of this of the banding that you weren't able to do and then what you actually were able to, you know, kinda cobble together. You mentioned that the, the no banding operations were conducted in the Arctic. And that's we're talking we say the Arctic, we're we're talking way far up there, um, beyond the borders of, of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, up at the very far northern extent of um, of Canada. And But then we also have the subarctic, which does include some of the more southern areas where we find some of these um, breeding colonies. La Perouse Bay is probably the classic example. Do we know what percentage of the overall you know goose nesting population occurs in the subarctic versus the, the Arctic? Most of them are in the
2: Arctic, correct? That's correct. Yeah, for snow geese, um, we know based on some photographic inventory that about Ninety percent of the mid-continent population of snow geese occurs in the Arctic, so north of sixty. And so, those southern colonies, the southern strata colonies, we call them, or at uh, in northern Ontario and northern Manitoba, represent a pretty small proportion of the midcontinent population. Um, and that and that uh, and those birds at La Perouse Bay were the were were the only snow geese in in uh, in northern Canada that were banded this year. And that was that was through a cooperative. Uh, Effort between the province and uh, and actually uh, uh, Dr. Rockwell, um, where the where the province was banding subarctic nesting Canada geese in the same location, and had an opportunity to uh, to at least put some bands on a on a small sample of snow geese just to 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 keep Rocky's uh, long term data set continuous, and also just to provide some some limited bandings for uh, for monitoring um, uh, you know harvest rate and and survival rates. So. Um, that's a that's a good example of cooperation right there.
1: Were there any other attempts made to band um, snow geese or any any other Arctic nesting geese uh, in Canada? I'm guessing not. There aren't very many other places where these birds could be uh, captured and banded outside the Arctic, other than what you're talking about there in in Manitoba. Or am I wrong
2: in that regard? No, no, that's correct. There was no there was really no other way for crews to to um, to get into Positions or to have the the, the uh, aircraft that they're disposable to, to band. So uh, typically in an in an average year, our Arctic banding program consists of sites on uh, Baffin Island and Southampton Island in the Eastern Arctic, and then uh, um, in the Central Arctic in the Queen Maud Gulf, where both uh, snow and Ross's geese and, and white fronted geese and cacklers are banded. And then also there's some banding up on. Uh, Banks Island, which is carried out by Eric Reed and in Yellowknife, and so all of these locations are um, extremely, you know, far north and extremely remote locations, and uh, without uh, without any access to aircraft, and with challenges of of virtually all these all of these sites, personnel have to go through communities and none of it to then get to their field camps. Yeah, uh, there was just no no possible way to, to ban these birds. At, at that time of year.
1: Yeah. And so, this banding data, as you've kind of alluded to this already, uh, banding data gives us the ability to track annual harvest rates, annual survival rates. But it's also one of the very first key pieces of information that we use to measure productivity for a given year. The number of juveniles to adults in, in the groups that are captured and banded gives us an index of that production. And, and we've already kind of stated that the vast majority of the Arctic nesting geese occur in areas where we were not able to access and band birds. So, uh, the only ones that we were able to represent a small fraction of the overall population. I kind of, I kind of hesitate to do this, but what can you tell me? What can you tell us, uh, Frank, about the production out of that small population that we were able to band this year?
2: The the small number of birds that were banded at La Perouse Bay had... Um, I think they had about 20% uh, juveniles in the banded portion which is is not is, is not a bad year at all um, uh, but if we look at what the weather conditions were like where the bulk of the of the midcontinent population of of like geese uh, nest uh, in the in, in the eastern Arctic so on Southampton and, and Baffin Islands and along West Hudson Bay um, based on the on the spring phenology information that we have. So snow cover and weather data, it looks like it should be below average production coming out of that area. Um, so there's Arctic geese or Arctic nesting geese are really strongly affected by spring phenology. And and um, and this year was a very late year, at least on Southampton Island and West Hudson Bay. Um, it was not quite as late on Baffin, but it was, it was, um, nearly as late as the complete bust in production that we had in in the in the year twenty eighteen, where there wasn't a single juvenile um, snow goose banded in, in in the entire Canadian Arctic that year. So that was almost a record bust, where there was very little production, and especially on Southampton Island, uh, the weather conditions there were very very um, very very late spring. Uh, lots of snow cover. I think about 40 centimeters of snow is still on the ground in about mid-June, um, which is similar to that really poor year. In, in the central Arctic, um, it didn't look uh, uh, quite as late, but where the colonies are, uh, obviously, are are a long ways from where we have weather data in communities, sometimes hundreds of miles away. And so, there can be, I guess, different Uh, microclimates, um, different amounts of snow cover. There's lots of things that can affect production and, and there's lots of things that can affect production after, you know, other than spring phenology. So um, the amount of cold and rain that we have after, after goslings hatch when they're at their really vulnerable stage can, can turn, um, you know, really good years of good spring phenology into, into years of really poor production. So we won't really have a uh, a complete idea of, of what, Production for the whole population looks like until we conduct some age ratio or productivity surveys here on the Canadian Prairies um, in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and, and Alberta, and uh, that's some work that we'll be starting to carry out in, a, in about a week, um, and we'll extend through until the end of October, and and that really will involve us uh, crews um, using spotting scopes and counting the numbers of juveniles and adults in in staging uh, concentrations of birds on. in in fields and both on on water uh, before they're subject to really any harvest pressure in, 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 on the prairies here. And, and so by, by November we'll have a pretty good idea of what production actually did look like.
1: Are those surveys conducted every year, those, um, those surveys on the prairies or is this something that you're implementing this year as a way to kind of fill a gap?
2: Yeah, they have been conducted for some species for a number of years, for I'd say there are long-term programs that have been conducted by Auscus with our science and te- technology branch, uh, mostly so focused on um, white-fronted geese, Ross's geese, and snow geese, and, and in Saskatchewan. And and this year, in the absence of of our our normal preseason banding data, uh, they've been expanded into Alberta, other parts of Saskatchewan, and then also into Manitoba here. And then we've also expanded the species that. Um, that we'll look at in those surveys. So um, they'll be conducted for white fronts, uh, Ross's geese, lesser snow geese, sandhill cranes, and possibly even uh, uh, tundra swans. So we're we're looking at it as uh, as sort of another part of our monitoring programs to understand annual production. And 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 I think it was something we were considering doing prior to losing these preseason banning programs. Um, but I think their importance has been somewhat elevated since since losing them and and the uh, the intent is for them to become a long term uh, monitoring program in in our region
1: well that's good to hear and and so it sounds like we will have some additional data. Uh, maybe the first big set of data uh, speaking to this art to this year's goose production. Uh, here in a month or two month and a half and so we might uh, try to catch up with you and see what the result of those surveys were once you get all that data summarized and kind of figured out and let us know what it says uh, I would imagine by then we would start to hear some reports out of some hunters as well of course they're not likely to, not likely to be very many non-resident hunters participating in that in Canada this year as we've discussed previously but it's definitely uh, you know another one of the things that we're having to, to adjust to a, a lack of data on, on production out of the Arctic and not knowing what to expect at least until a little bit later on um, and so it certainly sounds like your assessment of weather conditions across the arctic were not very encouraging uh, but we'll just have to kind of wait and see
2: we'll be happy to share that data yep absolutely i think there'll be pretty broad interest in the in the uh in the hunting community uh definitely based on the phone calls i've had in the
0: you and your dog are a team fuel is best in the field and in life with purina pro plan Sport.
1: Frank, what about any duck banding? Uh, I, I know there's a, a fair bit of that that goes on every year. Were those efforts able to continue or by, by the time they were, they were supposed to get underway? Had we figured out how to navigate uh, the, the pandemic kind of physical distancing restrictions to a point that we could actually get out and do some duck banding? Or were those suspended as well?
2: No, we did get out and and uh, and do some duck banding in our region. Um, we were able to band in uh, Manitoba and Saskatchewan. We didn't receive approval to start our preseason banding until uh, I think it was August fifth, and uh, so there was a lot of work done in that last part of July, putting together uh, project implementation plans and and ensuring that our protocols were consistent with public health advice and um, that we had. Uh, you know, appropriate PPE and and sanitizer, and and that we could find banning locations that were within um, at least initially within driving distance of where our staff uh, lived, um, because accommodation was a bit of a challenge. Meeting some of the uh, meeting some of the conditions, and it was difficult for us to work too far from uh, from home. So there were quite a few adjustments in terms of the sites, and then we did get a bit of a later start than. Um, than we typically uh, do when we're pre-season duck batting. We really like to be out in, in that latter part of July, third week of July, looking at sites, looking at water level, doing some pre-baiting and getting birds really concentrated before we uh, look at where we're going to set our traps up. So we like to have a large number of sites baited and then pick the best of them. Our primary target being mallards and pintails, uh, picking areas where those birds are are concentrated in that particular year. And so we are... Our uh, our approvals came a bit later than we were hoping, but uh, we we're we we're quite thankful to to get them. And so we got out on August fifth to fifth uh, or sixth to do our pre-baiting, and um, we did have quite a few issues uh, with bluing teal, which has become a sort of a well-known issue, I think, amongst preseason batters in in Prairie Canada and the northern U.S., where blueing teal are. Sort of overtake your bait trapping sites, and uh, we had a lot of issues with that in both Saskatchewan and Manitoba, where where we could band thousands of teal, um, but we're having a hard time getting mallards in the trap until late August. So we did have some success on mallards at the end, and uh, I think uh, the new sort of era of field work and during COVID nineteen, we learned a lot about adjustments to equipment and and uh, how to maintain distancing and sanitization of, uh, you know, vehicles and, and found some new banding sites. Uh, so I think we, I think we learned a lot and, uh, I think in the end we had a successful field season. And, uh, I think this is going to be important for, for how we conduct our business, uh, next year, especially where, um, our main issue in Prairie Canada this year was that, uh, we didn't have any, uh, crews from, uh, U S fish and wildlife service or Mississippi flyway. And so, the, the normal number of Canadian banded mallards will be substantially down. But um, I think we learned a, learned a fair bit this year to, to, to hit the ground running hopefully uh, next, um, next summer.
1: That's another piece of information that a lot of people don't realize is that the preseason banding that you referenced is another example of the collaborative nature of waterfowl management in North America. There are, as you as you said, individuals from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and state agencies here, uh, here in the States that actually travel north to assist with the banding efforts uh, in, in the fall. And of course, travel rest- restrictions prevented that from happening. So, that came at a uh, at an obvious cost to some, uh, you know, human resource capacity there, and that's reflected in your banding. I did want to, e- to explore this blue wing teal issue a bit. You know, I don't, I don't get up to to the area to the prairies to do any banding with any kind of regularity. Uh, so this is, um, I have heard this before, but I guess my question is. When you get all of those blue winged teal, do you do you band them the way you band all of them the way you normally do? Or is your focus really on the mallards because those you know, you have kind of quotas set for certain species that you're trying to hit because that information is valuable in some of our harvest management models. It's not like we're just out there banding willy-nilly just because it's fun. This is actual very important data that feeds some of our management tools, mallards, pintails, scalp, or some of the species I know that increased emphasis has been placed on in trying to band them. But what do you do in these situations where you have a lot of blue-winged teal that you capture? Do you band all of those or is it a a time issue where, you know, you band some of them, but but then others you have to release unbanded?
2: Yeah, great, great question. Um, I think every bander is a little bit different in how they deal with it. For us, uh, it is a time issue. Um, It is still time-consuming, you know, pulling teal out of traps and aging, sexing, and and banding them. So typically, what we do is we our focus is on mallards and pintails, and so we are look if we are over have, have a site that you know is overrun with teal or what we call overrun with teal, where you have you know potentially thousands of teal on a site, then we look at shutting those those sites down and. And, and and moving them, and we really we band. We we normally when we request our our quota of teal bands, we normally band out our exhaust our supply of teal, of, of teal bands, and and typically don't request more because we're focused on trying to find those other species, and and uh, we need to spend uh, the other portion of our day scouting to find new sites with, you know, with those target with those target ducks. So so this year in Manitoba, we we at a thousand. Uh, 500 of each sex, and we moved on um, and and spent our time uh, looking for those other species. And that that can be quite frustrating because you can have a what appears to be a a very good site um, with mallards, and sometimes mallards can be uh, challenging to get into traps. And and just what we've seen and talking to, to to other individuals banning in the prairies, we find that um, teal seem to enter the trap so early in the day after you, after the traps are set and maybe consume all the grain or just fill the traps to the point where nothing really else is interested in, in coming and feeding around them. So we're, we're, our approach this year was that we moved sites, uh, five times to try and, uh, to try and track down some mallards. And we ended up, uh, hitting mallards on our, our last site move in uh, late August, uh, and banded up until, uh, early September, September 2nd, I think. So I think everybody deals with it differently though. And um, sometimes uh, if you just can't find mallards, then I think individuals will continue to ban those teal in the, in the numbers that they come. But uh, if there looks like there's some favorable uh, opportunities for mallards, then most people will decrease their teal banding to try to focus on them.
1: Frank, thanks for entertaining me on that little detour. Banding, how it's conducted, its importance, and all the different moving parts of that of banding operations is is always an interesting and fascinating topic, especially for anyone that has actually not seen it uh, in person. And and of course, as you say, that it, it I would imagine every year is a different year in terms of what you're encountering in, encountering in one area versus the other, based on wetland conditions and production and whatever else uh, may may affect the number of birds you're able to capture and band in a given year. So, it always keeps you on your toes, that's for sure. And I, and I know we'll have additional conversations about banding because it's it's an incredibly popular and fascinating topic. Let's see. Frank, I think we're going to start to wrap up now, but but first I did want to ask you. I think I recall from an email last week where you told me that you were going you and your son were going to get out hunting last week and maybe it was your fun your your son's first hunt. Do I have that right? And if so, how did it go?
2: He's only five, so uh, he's been on a few hunts before, but uh, it was his first hunt with his new chest waders. So so actually, uh oh, okay. picked him up some chest waders earlier in the year, and he was pretty excited to get out with them and his and his little toy gun. And we went uh, and actually shot some blue-winged teal. So uh, uh, teal migrate uh, from the prairies relatively early. In fact, a lot of the banded birds uh, from earlier in the summer have been have been getting shot in special teal seasons in, in Wisconsin. And uh and Michigan and elsewhere in the Mississippi flyway. So they're on their way out, especially with the big wind we had last week. So we were able to get out and, and shoot some teal before they all left.
1: Very good. It's always exciting to get your, get your youngster out in the field to experience those types of things. So glad you were able to do that before the frigid wind uh, sounds like blew some of those teal out. Of course, the people down here where I live, are going to be happy to hear about those teal being on the move. And I know we have a couple of other conversations this week to with this week planned uh, around that very topic. So uh, it's getting to be that time. Frank, any other, any other comments? I mean, I'm, I'm that you want to leave our guest with at this time the border is still closed we're recording this in early september i don't know that an extension has been announced yet but i think everyone fully expects the the extensions to continue to roll on out so not nothing really new to update in that regard but anything else that you would be worth sharing with with our listeners with regard to either goose production duck production uh, out of your out of your region
2: Uh, No, just on the border closure, I think I I haven't heard of an extension. Uh, The current closure for non-essential travel, I think is until September 21st. And I haven't heard of an extension, but I think everybody is expecting there to be an an extension. So like you said, I don't think any major change is there. And as far as other production, we just don't have a lot of other information um, because we were unable to be in the field for our our May survey and uh, really just limited amount of time even you know personally and to, pur- to provide some sort of anecdotal observations from the field for earlier in, in the year but uh i guess i'd just like to, to wish everybody uh, a, a great hunting season and uh hopefully for all those folks that are missing coming to canada this year um, hopefully things are 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 changed enough uh to allow travel by next fall and people can get back to their normal traditions and i know I know so many people that travel north to hunt in Canada and, and it's such an important time for them and I just wanted to extend, I guess, our, our, our thoughts to those individuals that are gonna be going on a on a little bit of a hiatus for this year and hope to see you back next year. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Thanks for that, Frank. It is it, it, it upends. A lot of people's plans and is dealt a crushing blow to some people that had been planning uh, for these types of trips for for a long time. And you know, I know we had I had discussed potentially going to Canada earlier in the year with some of my friends, but as things wore on, we realized that wasn't going to happen. So we kind of fall into that category of those who are missing out on one of our usual experiences that we always look look forward to so much. So we're going to have to find other things to do with our time, but we will, and and we'll be back. The border will be open again once we get all this figured out and we'll all be happy to, to revisit the uh, the beautiful lands and, and bounty that, that Canada can provide this time of year. So, um, all right. Well, let's see. In summary, in terms of the snow goose production, I believe what we're thinking right now, we're expecting out of the Arctic, lower than average production production. Um, that's that's probably not what hunters are wanting to hear. We've had several tough years, uh, I think, but maybe uh, maybe those those previous years have kind of prepared you for for what we might see again this year. And then perhaps out of the subarctic uh, farther to the east um, around Hudson Bay, maybe we might get average production out of that. But uh, we will be able to speak speak to some of those issues in perhaps a bit more detail here later on as we get some more data out of the prairie so frank thank you so much for bringing this information to us what we are able to bring and, and talk about it's always fun every little piece of of information helps so thanks again for your time frank and look forward to you joining us joining us again here on the podcast
2: all right thanks a lot for having me
1: A special thanks to our guest on today's show, Frank Baldwin with Environment and Climate Change Canada. We appreciate the insights that he was able to give us on goose production out of the Arctic and subarctic, as well as some of the banding stories from this year, as well as other experiences in that regard. It's always fun hearing about these um, these waterfowl management efforts and the people that are that are responsible for them. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, who does a great job with the podcast. And of course, to you, the listener, we thank you for your time. We thank you for joining us here on the podcast, and we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation.